Before the Dawn, A Story of the Fall of Richmond by Joseph A. Altscheller Published by Doubleday, Page, and Company April 1903 Produced by Civil War Audio at civilwar.builtwithflash.com Read by John Bruzes You can find us on Facebook at Civil War Audio Podcast Chapter 20 The Secretary Looks On The old house in the woods, which still lay within the Confederate lines, became a hospital before morning, and when General Wood turned away from it, he beheld a woman staggering through the darkness, carrying a strange burden. It was Lucia Catherwood, and when she came nearer, he knew that the burden was a man. He saw then that the girl's expression was one that he had never before seen on the face of a woman. As he ran forward, she gasped, "'Take him! It is Captain Prescott!' Full of wonder, but with too much delicacy under his rough exterior to ask questions, the mountaineer lifted Prescott in his arms and carried him into the house, where he was placed on the bed beside Harley, who was unconscious too. Lucia Catherwood followed alone. She had been borne up by the impulse of excessive emotion, but she was exhausted now by her mighty effort. She thought she was going to faint, she who had never fainted in her life, and leaned against the outside wall of the house, dizzy and trembling. Black shadows, not those of the night, floated before her eyes, and the house moved away, but she recovered herself in a few moments and went in. Improvised beds and cots were in every room, and many of the wounded lay on the floor, too. Mixed with them were some in blue, just as on the other side of the battlefield were some in gray mixed with the blue. There was a powerful odor of drugs, of antiseptics, and Helen and Mrs. Markham were tearing cloth into strips. Prescott lay a long time, awaiting his turn at the surgeon's hand, so long that it seemed to Lucia Catherwood it would never come. But she stayed by his side and did what she could, though conscious that both Mrs. Markham and Helen were watching her at times with the keenest curiosity and perhaps a little hostility. She did not wonder at it. Her appearance had been so strange and was still so lacking in explanation that they could not fail, after the influence of the battlefield itself had somewhat passed, to be curious concerning her. But she added nothing to what she had said, doing her work in silence. The surgeon came at last and looked at Prescott's head and his bandages. He was a thin man of middle age, and after his examination, he nodded in a satisfied way. "'You did this, I suppose,' he said to Lucia. It was not the first woman whom he had seen beside a wounded man. When she replied in the affirmative, he added, "'I could not have done better myself. He's suffering chiefly from concussion, and with good nursing he'll be fit for duty again in a few weeks.' You can stay with him, I suppose? You look strong, and women are good for such work. Yes, I will stay with him, she replied, though she felt a sudden doubt how she should arrange to do so. The surgeon gave a few instructions and passed on. It was a busy night for him and all his brethren, and they could not linger over one man. Lucia still sat by the side of Prescott, applying cooling bandages, according to the surgeon's instructions, and no one sought to interfere with her. The house, which contained so many wounded, was singularly quiet. Hardly one of them groaned. 
There was merely the sound of feet moving softly. Two or three lights burned very low. Outside was the same silence and darkness. Men came in or went away, and the others took no notice. A man entered presently, a slender man of no particular presence, with veiled eyes, it seemed to Lucia, and she observed that his coming created a faint rustle of interest, something that had not happened with any other. He was not in uniform, and his first glance was for Helen Harley. Then he came toward Lucia, and bending down, looked keenly at the face of her patient. "'It is Captain Prescott,' he said. "'I am sorry. Is he badly hurt?' "'No,' she replied. "'He is suffering chiefly from concussion,' the surgeon says, "'and will be well again in two or three weeks. "'With good nursing?' "'Yes, with good nursing,' she glanced up in a little surprise. "'Revelation, comprehension, resolve, shot over James Sefton's face.' He was genuinely pleased, and as he glanced at Lucia Catherwood again, her answering gaze was full of understanding. "'Your name is Lucia Catherwood,' he said. "'Yes,' she replied without surprise. "'It does not matter how I knew it,' he continued. "'It is sufficient that I do know it. "'I know also that you are the best nurse Robert Prescott could have.' Her look met his, and despite himself, the deep red dyed her face, even her neck. There was a swift look of admiration on the secretary's face. Then he smiled amiably. He had every reason to feel amiable. He realized now that he had nothing to fear from Prescott's rivalry with Helen Harley, so long as Lucia Catherwood was near. Then why not keep her near? You are to be his nurse, he continued, and you must have the right to go through our lines, even to Richmond if necessary. Here is a pass for you. He took pencil and paper from his pocket and wrote an order, which he handed to her. The secretary's next concern was for Harley, and he spoke in low tones of him to Mrs. Markham and his sister. He had heard of his heroic charge at a critical moment, of a man rising from his bed of wounds to lead back his wavering regiment. The army was ringing with it. In the new republic, such a hero should have a great reward. Helen flushed with pleasure. But Mrs. Markham, shrewder and keener, said nothing. Her own husband, unhurt, came an hour later, and he was proud of his wife at work there among the wounded. The secretary stayed a long while, and Lucia felt at times that he was watching her with an eye that read her throughout. But when she saw him looking at Helen Harley, she thought she knew the reason of his complacency. She, too, was acute. The secretary brought news of the battle, and as he prophesied that the next day would be bloodier than the one just closed, he glanced through the window at the black wilderness with real awe upon his face. Lucia followed his look, and despite herself she felt a certain pride. This general, who struck so hard and never ceased striking, was her general. She had known that it would be so, but these people about her had not known it until now. She felt in her heart that the end was coming, but she knew it would be over the roughest road ever traveled by a victorious army. She formed plans, too, as she sat there, and was thankful for the past that she concealed in her dress. No matter how it had come, she had it, and it was all-powerful. She did not fear this secretary, whom others seemed to fear. If necessary, she would go to Richmond again, and she would there join her cousin, Miss Grayson, her nearest living relative, 
who could now give her protection that no one could question. About three o'clock in the morning, a young man, whose face and manner she liked, came in and looked at Prescott. He showed deep concern, and then relief, when assured that the wound was not serious. His name was Talbot, Thomas Talbot, he said, and he was a particular friend of Prescott's. He gave Lucia one or two glances, but in a few moments he went away to take his part in the next day's battle. Lucia dozed a little by and by, her sleep being filled with strange dreams. She was awakened by a low, distant sound, one that the preceding day had made familiar, the report of a cannon shot. She looked out of the window, and it was still so dark that the forest, but a short distance away, was invisible. They have begun early, she murmured. She saw Prescott stir, as if he had heard a call, and his eyes half opened. Then he made an effort to move, but she put her hand gently upon his forehead, and he sank back to rest. She saw in his half-open eyes a fleeting look of comprehension, gratitude, and joy. Then the eyes closed again, and he floated off once more into the land of peace, where he abode for the present. Lucia felt singularly happy, and she knew why, for so engrossed was she in Prescott that she had scarcely heard the second cannon shot replying to the first. There came others, all faint and far, but each with its own omen. The second day's battle had begun. The supreme commanders of either side were now ready. Human minds had never been more busy than theirs had been. Grant was still preparing to attack. No thought of failure entered his resolute soul. If he did not succeed today, then he would succeed on the next day, or the next week, or the next month. He would attack and never cease attacking. Lee stood resolutely in his path, resolved to beat him back, not only on this line, but on every other line, always bringing up his thinning brigade for a new defense. The wilderness still held secrets for both, but they intended to solve them that day, to see which way the riddle ran, and the wilderness itself was as dark, as calm, and as somber as ever. It had been torn by cannonballs, pierced by rifle bullets, and scorched by fire. But the two armies were yet buried in it, and it gave no sign to the world outside. In the house, despite the wounded, there was deep attention and a concern that nothing could suppress. The scattered cannon shots blended into a steady thunder already, but it was distant, and to the watchers told nothing. The darkness, too, was still so great that they could see no flashes. The secretary, mounted on an Accomac pony, rode out of the woods and looked a little while at the house, then turned away and continued in the direction of the new battle. He was in a good humor that morning, smiling occasionally when no one could see him. The combat already begun did not trouble Mr. Sefton, although it was his business there to see how it was going and supplement, or rather, precede the general's reports with such news as he could obtain, and so deaf to mind as his could obtain much. Yet he was not worried over either its progress or its result. He had based his judgment on calculations made long ago by a mind free from passion or other emotion, and as thoroughly arithmetical as a human mind can be, and he had seen nothing since to change the estimates then formed. 
When he thought how they missed Jackson, it was with no intention of deprecating wood. Both were needed, and he knew that the mountain general would be wherever the combat was fiercest that day. And then he might not come back. The secretary pondered over this phase of the matter. He had been growing suspicious of late, and Wood was a good general, but he was not sure that he liked him. But cha, there was nothing to dread in such a crude, rough mountaineer. He glanced to the left and saw there the heads of horses and horsemen rising and falling like waves as they swept over the uneven ground. He believed them to be Wood's troopers, and taking his field glass, he studied the figure that rode at their head. It was Wood, and the secretary saw that they were about to strike the northern flank. He was not a soldier, but he had an acute mind and a keen eye for effect. He recognized at once the value of the movement, the instinct that had prompted it, and the unflinching way in which it was being carried out. Perhaps Wood will fall there. He rides in the very van, he thought, but he immediately repented, because his nature was large enough to admit of admiration for a very brave man. The sun shone through the clouds a little, and directly upon the point in the northern lines where Wood was aiming to strike, and the secretary watched intently. He saw the ranks of horsemen rising and falling quickly, and then pausing for a second or two before hurling themselves directly upon the northern flank. He saw the flash of sabers, the jets of white smoke from rifle or pistol, and then the northern line was cut through. But new regiments came up. They threw themselves upon the cavalry, and all were mingled in a wild pell-mell among the thickets and through the forests. Clouds of smoke, thick and black, settled down, and horse and foot, saber and gun, were hidden from the secretary. Stubborn, as stubborn as death, he murmured, but the end is as certain as the setting of the sun. Turning his horse, he rode to a new hill, from which he made another long and careful examination. Then he rode a mile or two to the rear, and stopped at a small improvised telegraph station, whence he sent three brief telegrams. The first was to President Jefferson Davis of the Southern Confederacy in Richmond. The others, somewhat different in nature, were for two great banking houses, one in London and the other in Paris, and these two dispatches were to be forwarded from a seaport by the quickest steamer. This business dispatched, Mr. Sefton, rubbing his hands with pleasure, rode back toward the battle. A figure, black-bearded, gallant, and large, came within the range of his glasses. It was Wood, and the secretary breathed a little sigh of sorrow. The general had come safely out of the charge, and was still a troublesome entity. But Mr. Sefton checked himself. General Wood was a brave man, and he could respect such splendid courage and ability. Thinking deeply on the way, and laying many plans, he turned his pony and rode back toward the house, which was still outside the area of battle, and the secretary judged that it would not come within it on that day, at least. More than one in the log structure waited to hear what news he would bring. Prescott, shortly after daylight, had opened his ears to a dull, steady, distant sound, not unpleasant, and his eyes to a wonderful, luminous face, a face that he knew and which he once had feared he might never see again. "'Lucia Catherwood!' he said. "'Yes, it is I,' she replied softly, so softly that no one else could hear. "'I think that you must have found me and brought me here,' he said. 
An intuition had told him this. She answered evasively, You are not badly hurt. It was a piece of shell, and the concussion did the harm. Prescott looked a question. You will stay by me, his eyes said to her as plain as day. Yes, I will stay by you, was her positive reply in the same language. Then he lay quite still, for his head was dull and heavy, but it was scarcely an ache, and he did not suffer pain. Instead, a soothing content pervaded his entire system, and he felt no anxiety about anything. He tried to remember his moments of unconsciousness, but his mind went back only to the charge, the blow upon the head, and the fall. There everything had stopped, but he was still sure that Lucia Catherwood had found him, and somehow had brought him here. He would have died without her, of that he had no doubt, and by and by he should learn about it all. Men came into the house and went away, but he felt no curiosity. That part of him seemed to be atrophied for the present. But after a while something aroused his interest. It was not any of the men or women who passed and repassed, but that curious, dull, steady, distant sound which had beat softly upon his ears the moment he awoke. He remembered now that it had never ceased, and it began to trouble him, reminding him of the buzzing of flies on a summer afternoon when he was a boy and wanted to sleep. He wondered what it was, but his brain was still dulled and gave no information. He tried to forget, but could not, and looked up at Lucia Catherwood for explanation, but she had none to offer. He wished to go to sleep, but the noise, that soft but steady drumming on the ear, would not let him. His desire to know grew and became painful. He closed his eyes in thought, and it came to him with sudden truth. It was the sound of guns, cannon, and rifles. The battle, taken up where it had left off the night before, was going on. North and south were again locked in mortal strife, and the wilderness still held its secret, refusing to name the victor. Prescott felt a sudden pang of disappointment. He knew the straits of the south. He knew that she needed every man, and he was lying there, helpless, on a bed, while the persistent Grant was hammering away, and would continue to hammer away, as no general before him had done. He tried to move, but Lucia put her cool hand upon his forehead. That quieted him, but he still listened intently to the sound of battle, distinguishing with a trained ear the deep note of the cannon and the sharper crash of the rifle. All waited anxiously for the return of the secretary, confident that he would come, and confident that he would bring true news of the battle's fortunes. It required but a short acquaintance with Mr. Sefton to produce upon everyone the impression that he was a man who saw. The morning had not been without pleasure to Prescott. His nurse seemed to know everything and to fear nothing. Lucia understood her peculiar position. She had a full sense that she was an outsider, but she did not intend to go away, being strongly fortified by the feeling that she was making repayment. Once, as she sat by Prescott, Helen came too and leaned over him. Lucia drew away a little, as if she would yield to another who had a better claim, but Helen would not have it so. Do not go, she said. He is yours, not mine. Lucia did not reply, but a tacit understanding arose between the two women, and they were drawn toward each other as friends, since there was nothing to divide them. The secretary at that moment was riding slowly toward the house, turning now and then to look at the battle which yet hung in doubt, 
in its vast canopy of smoke. He studied it with keen eyes and a keener mind, but he could yet make nothing of it, and could give no news upon his arrival at the house. The long day waned at last, but did not bring with its shadows any decrease in the violence of the battle. Its sound was never absent for a moment from the ears of those in the house, and the women at the windows saw the great pyramid of flame from the forest fire, but their anxiety was as deep as ever. No word came to indicate the result. Night fell, close, heavy, and black, save where the forest burned, and suddenly the battle ceased. News came at length that the South had held her lines. Grant had failed to break through the iron front of Lee. A battle as bloody as Gettysburg had been fought, and nothing was won. Forty men had been struck down in the wilderness, and Grant was as far as ever from Richmond. The watchers in the house said little, but they rejoiced, all save Lucia Catherwood, who sat in silence. However the day might have ended, she did not believe the campaign had ended with it, and her hope continued. A messenger arrived in haste the next day. The house must be abandoned by all who could go. Grant had turned on his left flank and was advancing by a new road. The southern army must also turn aside to meet him. It was as Lucia Catherwood expected. Meade, a victor at Gettysburg, had not attacked again. Grant, failing in the wilderness, moved forward to fight within three days another battle as great. The story of either army was the same. The general in his tent touched the spring that set all things in motion. The soldiers rose from the hot ground on which they lay in a stupor rather than sleep. Two streams of wounded poured to the rear one to the north and one to the south. The horses, like their masters, worn and scarred like them too, were harnessed to cannon and wagon. The men ate as they worked. There was no time for delay. This was to be a race, grand and terrible in its nature, with great battles as incidents. The stakes were high. The players played with deadly earnestness. Both generals sent orders to hurry, and themselves saw that it was done. The battle of yesterday and the day before was a thing long past. No time to think of it now. The dead were left for the moment in the wilderness as they had fallen. The air was filled with commands to the men, shouts to the horses, the sound of wheels in the mud, the breaking of branches under weight, and the clank of metal. The wilderness, torn now by shells and bullets and scorched by the fires, waved over two armies gloomier and more somber than ever deserving to the full its name. They were still in the wilderness, and it had lost none of its ominous aspects. Far to the left and right, yet burned the forest fires set by the shells, flaring luridly in the intense blackness that characterized those nights. The soldiers, as they hurried on, saw the ribbons and coils of flame leaping from treetop to treetop, and sometimes the languid winds blew the ashes in their faces. Now and then, they crossed parts of the forest where it had passed, and the earth was hot to their feet. Around them lay smoldering logs and branches, and from these fallen embers tongues of flame arose. Overhead, the moon and stars were shut out by the clouds and smoke and vapor. Even with a passion for a new conflict rising in them, the soldiers, as they hurried on, felt the weirdness, the satanic character of the battleground. The fitful flashes of lightning often showed faces stamped with awe. 
Wet branches of low-growing trees held them back with a moist and sticky touch. The low rumble of thunder came from the far horizon, and its tremendous echo passed slowly through the wilderness. And mingled again with this sound was an occasional cannon shot as the fringes of the two armies hastening on passed the time of night. The tread of either army was heavy, dull, and irregular, and the few torches they carried added little light to the glare of the lightning and the glow of the burning forest. The two marched on in the dark, saying little, making little noise for numbers so great, but steadily converging on Spotsylvania, where they were destined to meet in a conflict rivaling in somber grandeur that of the past two days.